Well, welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. And for many around the world, summer is just around the corner. For U.S. consumers, the heat is already on. Red-hot inflation numbers just released in the United States. U.S. consumer prices rising a worse-than-expected 8.6% on a year-over-year basis, driven by a continued spike in food and energy prices. The core rate of those inflation numbers, which strip out volatile food and energy, also coming in higher than expected. These are the highest CPI numbers in over 40 years, and they suggest the United States is far from hitting peak inflation, as some had hoped. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures. The stock market futures sharply lower, as you can see, in response with all the major U.S. averages set to extend Thursday's losses. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Rahel, walk us through these numbers. Three words, energy, energy and energy. But there's a lot of ouch in this. Uh, energy is a big part of it, to your point, Julia. But yes, this report is not what uh, any consumer, or certainly not the Fed, wants to see. The number coming in hotter than expected. If you take a look uh, under the hood in the report saying that the increase was broad-based, with uh, indexes for shelter, energy, gasoline, and food being the largest contributors. Uh, take a look at the, the price difference in food. Those prices went up 1.2 percent. Inflation went up 1.2 percent compared to the prior month. Energy, 3.9 percent. And airfares, 12.6 percent, Julia. So uh, what's happening here? If you think about the top line, uh, food and energy, of course, being hit very hard by the war in Ukraine and its impact on commodity markets. But if you look under in terms of core inflation, well, a lot of that was the supply and demand imbalances of the pandemic. And there was some hope that even in the midst of this war, Julia, that with uh, supply chains starting to improve and perhaps demand cooling, that maybe we would see some slowing in inflation. But it doesn't appear to be so, at least not yet. No, and it's going to be a driver of uh, behavior, of consumer sentiment, and therefore broader markets as well, which is the reaction, I think, that we've seen in stock markets. And that ties to the, the actions that the Fed has to take now in order to try and bring that inflation rate down. We were already expecting two half a percentage point hikes over the next two months. The big question was, what do they have to do, if anything, in September? And when you look at these numbers, it seems probably have to do more rather than less. Yeah, exactly right. So the expectation was maybe... 0.25 in September in that September meeting. Uh, this perhaps leading some to believe that we're going to see another half a point uh, in September. So three half point raises. Look, this essentially, this report lending some support to the idea that the Fed will have to do more, that it will have to be more aggressive to try to rein in inflation. I think there are two camps here. There are those who believe that once the once the Fed puts its foot on the brake, it has to keep going until inflation starts to cool. There are others, however, that I've spoken to, like David Kelly of J.P. Morgan, who say, uh, look, he's more concerned that the Fed will overshoot, right, that it will do too much and really tip us into a recession. So uh, as we have talked about a lot, Julia, it is a very delicate balancing act made even more delicate and tricky after today's report. Yes, Rahel Solomon, great to have you with us. And uh, thank you for the analysis there. Challenges ahead for everyone. To Ukraine now, where the battle for eastern city of Severodonetsk continues. Officials say Ukrainian armed forces control just one-third now of the city. British intelligence, meanwhile, says Russia is struggling to provide basic services in occupied territories, including access to drinking water. Summer Abdelaziz joins us now. Summer, as we've been discussing on a daily basis, the battle for Severodonetsk continues. The challenge, of course, for Russia, it seems, when they take these places, they then can't provide basic resources because so much damage has been done. And explain where you are, because I think that's the perfect illustration. 
That's true, Julia. And we're really seeing a tale of two Ukraines, at least that's what I'm witnessing here in Kyiv. On the one hand, of course, you have this raging battle in Severodonetsk where President Zelensky says the fate of the Donbass is being determined. Uh, they are now fighting street by street, inch by inch for that city. It is extremely symbolic because it's one of the last strongholds in the Luhansk region, in the larger Donbass region, and Ukrainian troops are outmanned. They are outgunned. They are running out of artillery in what is an artillery war, and it's hard to imagine how they can turn the tide unless Western weaponry shows up, unless long-range uh, weapons that have been promised by the West show up. It, this is a superior military force in Ukrainian troops are simply struggling to hold them back. But here in Kyiv, where Russian troops have, of course, withdrawn for weeks now, volunteers are trying to rebuild. I'm in a residential building, and I'm just going to start walking you through it so you can get an understanding of the devastation caused by an artillery war, because that's what this is. Uh, residents tell us that when troops entered, they shelled this residential building indiscriminately. You can see how damaged it is behind me. The roof has been blown off. It's absolutely uninhabitable, of course. And that means that it is communities that have to rebuild because, of course, the Ukrainian government is mired in the east of the country. All day volunteers have been wheelbarrowing, as you can see, uh, the uh, rubble that's here. We're just going to let this gentleman pass through. I'm sorry. And what the hope is, again, for the volunteers who are working here, who are doing this on their own time with their own money, is that families will come back, Julia, because that's who lived here. There's kids' books on the ground everywhere. We see, you know, bits of kitchens and normal life. And that, this devastation caused by this war, it happens in an instant. But rebuilding, Julia, that takes much, much longer. Yeah, it does. Summer, thank you for being there and showing us that. Summer Abdelaziz there. Okay, let's move on. A U.S. House committee has released what it calls new evidence that Donald Trump led in a coordinated effort to overturn the 2020 election. In the first of several public hearings, the panel showed new graphic footage of Trump supporters attacking the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th last year. The committee chair says they were directly motivated by the former president and his false claims of voting fraud. And Benny Thompson fears it could happen again. The conspiracy to thwart the will of the people is not over. There are those in this audience who thirst for power but have no love or respect for what makes America great. Ali Honig is CNN senior legal analyst and former federal and state prosecutor and joins us now. Ellie, great to have you with us. I know you are a super tough critic and it's that that I'm playing to in this when you analyse what we saw last night. But my bigger question is, who are we messaging to? Who is this committee messaging to? Is it the American people? Is it an attempt to make Donald Trump look unelectable in the next election? Or is it to those that could actually take action, like the Department of Justice, for example? So I think there's two audiences here, Julia. First and foremost, the American public. This needs to be told for history. This is an important passage in our history. And the American electorate needs to be fully informed as we head into the 2024 election and ask the question, is this a person, if he seeks re-election, who's worthy of the office? But also, Julia, as you say, this is aimed right up Pennsylvania Avenue at the United States Department of Justice. Congress ultimately can't do anything other than hold these hearings. At the end, if there's going to be meaningful consequences, they have to come for prosecutors, it's clear that the committee is trying to make the case and increase political pressure on DOJ to take action. I mean, you said it's a matter of record for the American public too, but do you think it can, the number of days that we're about to see in the presentation that we get, can change heart and minds 
in terms of perceptions, particularly those that staunch Donald Trump supporters, for example? Without question, there's a healthy portion of the population that's, that's fully entrenched on either side. I still do think there's a middle. I still do think people here in the United States care about the facts and are making judgments. Most importantly about if Donald Trump does run again, and it seems increasingly likely that he will, is this a person whose actions make him deserving of the highest office in the land? So I do think the facts matter. Uh, and I do think there still are people who want to give this an objective look and know all the facts and, and reach their own judgments. And what are we looking for ultimately next week for that deciding so the, factor? Yeah. Yeah. The big question to me is what did Donald Trump know about the, the election? I think they made a good case last night that he knew he had lost and hence this was a fraud. But the biggest remaining question, Julia, is those 187 minutes from 1.10 p.m. when the Capitol was breached till 4.17 p.m. when Donald Trump issued a video statement saying go home. We still don't know much about what Donald Trump was doing. We know he wasn't doing a lot, but we, what was he doing inside the White House that day? What was his reaction? And I think we're going to get into that. Liz Cheney said last night we will hear more about that in the upcoming hearings. I think that's going to be really telling. Mm. Monday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern. Ellie, yep. great to have you on the show. Thank Thanks, you. Julie. All right, straight ahead. We're all in a stew over inflation. The CEO of Grocer, Stu Leonard, on what he's doing to keep prices down. And from the checkout to the catwalk, the CEO of Rent a Runway explains why runaway inflation doesn't mean compromising on style and choice. It's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and returning now to today's critical U.S. monthly inflation report. And CNN has just learned that President Biden will address inflation concerns and supply chain issues during his visit to the port of Los Angeles today. CNN's Gabe Cohen takes a look at the impact of pricing pressures on the more vulnerable in society. The prices, oh my God, the prices. 72-year-old Joyce Silla has seen inflation eat through her fixed income, $1,700 a month of Social Security. What has that done to your savings? It's gone. It's depleted. No savings. That's it. If, if I can make it from one month to the other month, that's good. She was the assistant director of housekeeping at a large D.C. hotel before retiring 10 years ago. Now a widow, she's relying on food banks for the first time and watching her power bills pile up. It's not a good feeling. I know I worked. I didn't take shortcuts. While inflation is hitting most Americans, many retired seniors face an added squeeze. For 10 million of them, Social Security, on average just over $1,600 a month, is at least 90 percent of their income. And inflation is far outpacing this year's cost of living increase on those benefits, though it was the biggest raise in 39 years. It's not just food and gas prices. Healthcare costs are rising, and many retirement accounts have taken a hit. That is just a burden that's very difficult to bear for some of these people, and that's when they have to make tough choices. We've gone through our retirement savings more quickly than we had anticipated. 70-year-old so Cynthia now, Tilford you know, returned part-time to a clerical job at a university in Houston to stop draining her accounts. The thought of retirement right now is really scary. Lower-income seniors are facing more food insecurity. Meals on Wheels has struggled to keep up with high demand. It's not good. 73-year-old Bill Teixeira, a retired phone technician, is skipping three meals a week to save on food. It wouldn't last a whole month if I didn't. He says Social Security pays him $1,400 a month, 
and his rent in Sacramento just rose to $1,240. I could be on the street if it goes up too much higher. You're worried you could end up homeless. It keeps me awake sometimes. Seniors are becoming homeless at a faster rate than any other age group, and skyrocketing rent costs could make it worse. It's a bit of a crisis. At Culpeper Garden, a nonprofit affordable senior living community in Virginia, the wait list is growing. It's uh, doubled, almost tripled within the past eight months, I'd say. Have you ever seen this many seniors applying for affordable housing? We have not. We have not. Hundreds of these communities nationwide are seeing the same surging demand. And we think it's because of the inflation surges and rent surges. Seniors can expect a near record Social Security increase next year to combat this inflation. And for now, they can go to BenefitsCheckup.org to see what help is out there. We find that your average older adult's often leaving $7,000 worth of assistance on the table. Assistance programs have kept Joyce Silla afloat this year. She fears one more price hike could break the bank. So it's kind of hard what you do, what you have to do. We're focusing on America, of course, today, but it's a global story. China's economy also facing pricing pressures, too. At the moment, they're showing signs of a revival. Imports and exports jumped in May after slumping during the April lockdowns. Tech stocks gained after reports suggested an easing of the tech sector crackdown, too. Selena Wang joins us on this story. Selena, great to have you on the show today. It was in many ways a self-inflicted slowdown, the crackdown on some of these big growth names, trying to restrain some of the lending in the real estate sector, zero COVID policy. Have they turned a corner or is it too early to say? Yeah, Julia, that's exactly right. I mean, the economy is still in pain, but a lot of that pain is, in fact, self-inflicted, as you say. But we are starting to see this zero-COVID policy. We are starting to see the worst of that Omicron outbreak starting to ease off in Shanghai, the city, after a two-month hard, brutal lockdown finally reopening. So the port of Shanghai, this is the world's busiest port, that is finally reopening. So that is really boosting the trade data, with exports in May jumping nearly 7 17% from a year before. Compare that to in April when it grew less than 4%. On top of that, according to shipping firm Value Vessels, average waiting times at Shanghai's port have shortened to just 28 hours. Compare that to 66 hours in late April. And also, while inflation continues to surge around the world in Shanghai, in China, well, prices, they are cooling. That's because these lockdowns have had this dampening effect on factory activity, on consumer retail activity as well. So as a result, analysts say that China's central bank is able to continue to increase stimulus to help boost the economy. Now, contrast that to many other central banks around the world that are having to hike these interest rates to try and reduce that inflationary pressure. Now, also, the economy, however, in China it is still being held hostage to these lockdowns. So investors, they cannot completely repair their confidence. Over in Shanghai, there are many more communities that are continuing to go under lockdown. Here in Beijing, we are seeing the largest district have its large entertainment venues now going back into shutdown just days after they were finally allowed to reopen. So this relief, it could just be temporary, Julia. And that's the critical question. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. 
Now, as we've been discussing, high U.S. inflation means weak U.S. futures. U.S. stocks set to open sharply lower after the release of another red-hot consumer inflation report, inflation rising at 8.6 percent year over year, thanks in part to soaring food prices and record U.S. gas prices. The average price of a gallon of gas in the United States is just pennies away now from the milestone $5 a gallon. Also, that Friday feeling over in Europe, too, as the European majors are all down by around 2%. As you can see, stocks there extending their losses after Thursday's week close following the European Central Bank's announcement of its upcoming rate hike plan. Lisa Shallett joins me now. She's Chief Investment Officer of Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. Great to have your perspective on the show. Very much needed, Lisa. Um, Talk to us about this inflation number. Slightly hotter than expected. How concerned are you? Well, look, this is a definitely a concerning number. I think that, you know, the market, uh, certainly um, since May 20th, when we kind of hit uh, a bottom and have been trying to rally off of it, I have been assuming that inflation in the U.S. was peaking, especially uh, on the back of uh, potentially, you know, building inventories and in general merchandise and at retail. Uh, And I think one of the big surprises in this report is that goods inflation, which a lot of folks thought was really going to roll over hard, did not. And, um, you know, you put that together with some of the other components that feed into the headline. uh, And this 8.6 percent number is not something, uh, you know, that the Fed is going to like. They're going to have to stay quite hawkish. Uh, And they're really going to have to, uh, you know, probably um, execute on on what their telegraphed plan has been thus far, uh, which the market interprets as 50 basis points in June, 50 basis points in July, uh, and potentially, you know, uh, more in September at the same time uh, that they're going to, you know, ramp up the balance sheet reduction. So this is not good news. Uh, for the bond market, yields are probably moving higher here, uh, which means lower price earnings ratios and, and big headwinds for stocks. The shift is going to be dramatic, as you point out. We've gone from this easy monetary period, and now I think both investors and consumers have been grappling with a situation that's been quite plentiful in terms of cash availability, in terms of uh, liquidity in the system. And now it's going to be sucked away. And we've all been trying to understand what the impact of that's going to be. I think perhaps the message, and you're, you're saying it in this report, is that even if we see a slowdown and consumers do start to show that they're feeling it more materially, the Fed still has no choice, that the solution to the problem of high prices here is, is more pain. Absolutely. I mean, look, we got so far, quote unquote, behind the curve. Uh, Investors need to remember that typically, typically the Fed funds rate is above your core uh, inflation rate. Uh, And we, you know, have gotten ourselves into a scenario where, you know, when we had a zero Fed funds rate at the beginning of the year and our core uh, inflation rate was, you know, teetering on 6%. I mean, that's a 600 basis point gap to make up. Uh, and so, you know, we know that the Fed funds futures are discounting a very aggressive path here. You know, that's already been priced. But look, the risk uh, is that even with those hikes, we don't make a dent. Uh, and certainly, we, you know, the Fed has done 75 basis points so far and The message is it hasn't made a dent. 
And just for my audience, you might not understand basis points when we're talking about 600 basis points. We're talking about yeah. six percentage points. Six just percent. to just to yeah. be clear. Yeah. Lisa, yeah. how high is that risk? As you say, that the Fed is doing what it can. It's doing what it feels it comfortably can without causing too much pain in a very short space of time and actually doesn't make a dent. How high is that risk? Um, so look, I, I think that that in in all likelihood, the, the Fed has had to acknowledge uh, that they've made some mistakes, that they were late. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, no one can fault them for not uh, understanding or forecasting the dynamics that have emanated from, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war. And that's impact on, you know, energy, gas prices, food prices. Uh, but I think where, where you know, we can fault them uh, are some of the other structural disruptions, most specifically in the labor market. Uh, and so, you know, I do think that, that the Fed is going to have to fall on their sword a little bit. Their credibility is on the line. And that means they may have to, quote unquote, overdo it. Uh, and so right now, you know, the market, as we talked about, was pricing about an additional 825 or quarter point rate hikes uh, over the next, uh, you know, 12 months to take us uh, to about 2.5 percent on that Fed funds rate. I mean, maybe we're going to have to go, you know, up closer to three uh, or higher. Uh, and that's the risk here. And I think that's what the market's going to have to experiment with pricing uh, over the coming weeks. It's interesting, Lisa, because coming into this, you were, of all the analysts that I read, you were one of the most calm and quietly, I think, confident that the consumer can manage this, that the the Fed can manage this, um, that we also were exactly, and I I completely agree with you on this, that we were coming off a strong V-shaped recovery. And we have to put the that into perspective, too, in terms of the timing of this, as, as, as crazy as this period has been. Does looking at this report today, and admittedly it's just one data point, sort of change your mind a little bit on that and that actually the, the stakes and the risks are higher here and the recession risk, simply because the Fed has a battle to get this under control, is perhaps higher now too? It it, it does. Um, you know, look, I, I think we, you know, really... Um, you know, had focused on some of the constructive messages that were coming out of the inventory data that we were seeing. Um, you know, certainly some of the news from the retailers, uh, you know, that they felt that supply chain problems had cleared, that maybe they had excess inventory, and that perhaps they were even be beginning to prepare for some discounting. Um, and we were really counting on um, goods prices, uh, which have been a key driver of this inflation problem coming down. And so the big shocker to me in this report uh, is that goods prices did not roll over. And so you say to yourself, well, goodness, if those, um, you know, uh, pullbacks in um, general merchandise categories and some of the, the pressures we've seen in semiconductors and some of the pressures we've seen in autos uh, aren't taking the edge off, um, wow, you know, what is this going to take? Uh, and so this is this is a concerning report. And I do think that the market, unfortunately, is reacting rationally to that. And, you know, we're certainly going to be going back and looking at our numbers and saying, look, is, is the is the consumer really hurting uh, more than we originally thought? Some great points, Lisa. Fantastic to get your uh, wisdom and insight on this. Thank you, Lisa Charlotte there, the Wealth Man Chief 
Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, up next, saving at the checkout. Stu Lennon, CEO, on keeping your food shop costs down. The question is how. That's next. Welcome back. A Ukrainian agricultural official is warning that next year's grain harvest could be cut nearly in half because of the war. He said about 25% of Ukraine's farmland is now under Russian control. And even though Turkey is trying to facilitate safe package of passage of Ukraine's grain exports, no deal has been struck, as CNN's Claire Sebastian reports. Just a day after talks between Russia and Turkey seemed to lay the groundwork for at least some kind of negotiation, perhaps even just on a temporary solution to the problems of Ukraine's grain exports, more and more obstacles now seem to be getting in the way of that. One is that Russia may already be putting in place deals to sell Ukrainian grain from occupied areas. On Wednesday, the head of the Russian military administration in occupied parts of Ukraine's Zaporizhia region said the first rail shipment of grain had departed the town of Militopol for Crimea to be loaded onto ships to Turkey and the Middle East. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said no agreements had been signed yet with Turkey or the Middle East, but work was underway. Ukraine, meanwhile, is accusing Russia of stealing grain to sell for its own gain. This is what the country's deputy agrarian minister told CNN's Julia Chatterley. Unfortunately, we have uh, the situation where about half million ton of grain uh, has been stolen by Russians on the partly occupied territories of Ukraine. Uh, we do know this because we have received the uh, information from the uh, people on the elevators that uh, Russians came just took this grain, uh, came with military power. And also we have the video and photo effects of uh, cars and rail cars bringing this grain uh, towards the direction of Russia or occupied Crimea. Elevators are, of course, storage facilities for grain. The minister also said he had seen satellite images of the grain leaving Crimea for other countries. CNN has also uncovered evidence of this. And secondly, Ukraine is stepping up the rhetoric. President Zelensky calling for Russia to be expelled from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, accusing Moscow of potentially causing the starvation of at least 400 million people. And thirdly, there are still fundamental disagreements about how to unravel this situation. Russia, which has blockaded Ukraine's ports, claims it's ready to open up grain shipments. But first it says Ukraine needs to demine the coastal waters around its southern ports. Ukraine says the real threat to world food security comes from Russia and is wary of any Russian talk of humanitarian maritime corridors. And meanwhile, time is not on their side. An estimated 20 million tons of grain are stuck in Ukrainian storage facilities. And the UN warned this Thursday that the situation could tip 47 million more people into acute hunger this year than previously estimated. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. And all of this, of course, feeding into the inflation data that we got from the United States today and U.S. investors reacting negatively to that worse than expected inflation report. Stock sharply lower on news that consumer prices rose at a worse than expected 8.6 percent year over year last month, their fastest pace since 1981. Stocks falling as investors begin pricing in an even more aggressive Federal Reserve, as we were discussing with Lisa Shallot. Market now pricing in three half percentage point Fed rate hikes at the central bank's upcoming meetings.
And the U.S. 10-year bond yield moving higher too, reflecting fears of those higher rates. Now, the pandemic has changed the way millions of people shop for clothes. E-commerce platform Rent the Runway allows users to rent and return designer brands for less. The company concept was born out of a recessionary period in 2008-9 and a realisation that women still buy clothes. They just make different choices. In light of that, and in part, its CEO sees high inflation in the environment as an opportunity rather than a challenge. And Jennifer Hyman joins us now. She's the CEO and co-founder of Rent the Runway. Jennifer, fantastic to have you on the show. For those that might not know what the brand represents, just explain in your own terms what Rent the Runway offers to women and why you see the inflationary environment as an opportunity. Yeah, so really simply... For basically all of history, we've been buying a lot of clothes, 50% of which we really don't use. So 50% of the closet is worn three times or less. What Rent the Runway does is it enables women to rent designer clothes that are aspirational to them, either for one-off special events or via a subscription to fashion where she pays a monthly fee and she gets a rotating assortment of items of her choosing. And how much do you pay for that? And and what access do you get? Because I think this goes to the point about the offset to inflation. There are ways around having a great wardrobe, and it doesn't involve um, splurging. Yeah. So first, if you're renting for a special event, you're renting at about 10% of the retail price. So even as we see kind of promotional activity in retail stores as kind of Uh, Maybe shoppers may be shifting into off-price or value-driven retail. We're still the most value-oriented way to get dressed for a wedding or a holiday party or a date that you might be going to. Subscription is even more value-oriented. So our subscription plans, you're receiving each item for about 20 bucks. Um, Our most popular plan costs $140 a month. And for that, she receives $4,000 worth of designer clothing on average per month. So it really gives her access to the variety that she wants in her wardrobe, but in a really affordable and sustainable way. You know, one of the most interesting things about the 2008 recession is that Americans continued to buy 65 articles of clothing per year, even in a recession. So really what they did is they traded down to, you know, off price to value oriented stores. And we hope to be now in that consideration set of how they think about getting the variety and the quantity that they want, but doing it in a smarter way. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I know the pandemic period where a lot of people stayed at home and perhaps didn't do the events or go out to work was an incredibly challenging period for you. But I was just looking at your earnings and um, looking at the the resurgence in terms of the number of active users, the number of days on average where women are actually wearing something that they've rented from the website. Just talk me through that and and sort of forecasting progress for for the resurgence of Rent Rent the Runway. Yeah, so we're really proud of our strong Q1 performance. We exceeded Q1 guidance against all key metrics, both on the top line and the bottom line. And I think that it really um, shows that we're an experience-driven product. So our business accelerates when customers travel, when they eat out at restaurants, when they attend events, when they head back into an office, and when they generally go out, which is why our business suffered so much when people were sheltering at home during COVID. Um, We're finding that despite uh, 
the environment right now, which is highly uncertain, that the customer continues to want to show up in her life and use fashion for self-expression. She's certainly dating. She's certainly going to parties and she wants to be happy. And Rent the Runway is enabling her to do that in a really cost-conscious way. So we're feeling really good about both our Q1 results, but we gave a you know positive uh, outlook for Q2. And finding that this kind of reemergence into the world has certainly been great for our business. Yeah, as I was say, it ties to what we're seeing in the travel industry as well. It's like, come what may, people want to get back out there and um, and live life. And um, that's certainly, I think, reflected in what you're talking about here. Very quickly, I want to ask you about something that I think, just from reading about the companies, perhaps misunderstood. And that's where the inventory of clothes comes from and the relationship that you have with the designer brands that provide it, what you pay, or perhaps more specifically, what you don't pay up front to get these products. And then the fact that it sort of knocks out some of the seasonality that we see, the, oh, this is in fashion this month or in this season, and then it's gone. The beauty, I think, that I certainly hear from, from my friends and people that I know that use this is, you know, new to me is a concept here, even if it's been used many times on the website. This is important, I think, an important part of the business and the premise of the business. You know, thank you for bringing that up. I think the most important part of our business is how we monetize inventory over time. So there's this myth that exists in fashion that things go out of style really quickly. And what we find over the past 12 years is that what our customer cares about is wearing a new outfit every time she comes to rent the runway. But that new outfit doesn't have to necessarily be something that walked the runway yesterday. So we really utilize personalization to ensure that her storefront is new and fresh to her every single time she comes. But we find that we're able to actually monetize this style over many years. And it's our job to restore it to perfect condition every time and ensure that it is of the highest quality even two, three, four years later. So we're able to kind of uh, use the long tail. Like, for example, in the middle of the country, women don't want new trends when it just comes off the runway. Until it seeps into the mainstream, um, they're not comfortable in kind of accessing that new product. So we're really able to benefit as well from geographic diversity in our customer base. Now, in terms of the value that we provide to the 800 brands that we work with, we've become one of their most powerful marketing engines. So our customer is younger than the traditional luxury customer. So she's between 20 and 45 years old, and she's more affluent. So 80% of our customers have household incomes above 100K. And when she comes to Rent the Runway, she is trying new brands because she has the freedom to experiment without having to own it. And that brand discovery is critically important for brands in a time when retail stores are closing and the cost of marketing is really skyrocketing. So we've become this extremely important marketing channel. And as a result, we get a significant portion of our inventory from brands on consignment, meaning we don't pay for it up front and we revenue share with our designer partners as that inventory is utilized over time critical for managing costs. Jennifer, I'm getting shouted at for uh, taking too much time, but it would be remiss of me not to discuss very briefly the IPO. You IPO'd at $17.25. It's now $3.53. And we've had the pandemic, as we've mentioned in the interim, and some questions and challenges. Um, What's the message to investors today that have 
perhaps been through that pain with you, have stuck with you, maybe have walked away and said, hey, this is not the right time now to be an investor. What's the message to them about the return? I think the message is that we're going to keep on performing. We're driving this business to free cash flow profitability. We feel really good about getting to profitability with the cash that we have on hand. And we're going to build a track record over time. I think that in this market environment, it makes sense that people are more skeptical of unprofitable companies mm. like Rent the Runway. That being said, we're going to show in our performance quarter over quarter that we're growing, we're providing an incredible customer experience, and we're driving the business to profitability. Jennifer, great to chat to you. Let's chat again soon, please, and um, track progress. Jennifer Hyman there, CEO and co-founder of Rent the Runway. Thank you for your time. More First Move after this. Welcome back to First Move. As consumers feel the pinch of inflation, CEOs under increasing pressure to explain why the weekly shop is costing so much more. Some are resisting the rises, like the maker of Arizona Tea, who told our Richard Quest its famous 99-cent drink haven't gone, hasn't gone up in price since it launched in 1992. I don't think our customers need another price increase. And uh, we're just fighting hard to maintain that price so we give consumers a reason to buy us and give consumers a, uh, at least a company recognizes the pain that everybody's gone through. And if everybody pulls together, maybe we get through it together. In U.S. grocery store, Stu Leonard says it's working with suppliers to keep costs down. The family-owned brand has been providing for American shoppers since 1969. And Stu Leonard Jr. is the CEO and joins us now. Stu, always great to have you on the show. Have you seen, ever actually seen anything like the price pressures that we're seeing? And how are you managing it? What what extent are you passing these on? Yeah. You know, well, first of all, Julie, before we do that, we've been trying so hard to get this product in the store, we just got 11,000 uh, a baby formula uh, into Stu Leonard's and Yonkers right now. And um, we're selling at a cost. I'm so happy because our customers obviously need um, a baby formula. So that's the first thing we're excited about. Um, as far as the markets go right now, I've never seen anything in the 50 years I've been doing this. I started as a kid in this business. It's been wild out there. But I would say there's a little bit of a hangover in all of the numbers that you're seeing right now. I know today, super price index had inflation and terrible. That was the past. I, we were just in Kansas City with our ranchers. The beef market seems to be calming down. I was talking to a lot of our fishermen up in Maine, along the coast, Jersey, New Jersey, and, and it seems like lobster prices now are coming down again. So we're starting to hear echoes out in the market right now of the market stabilizing. And I think the worst is behind us right now. Is that just from those conversations that you were having with the ranchers, just to go back to the farms, which obviously is something that you're very famous for, just understanding not just about how the supply chain's working, but right back to the farm to get a sense of that? Because it's there's price pressures all along the chain. Well, I know it, and I'm, we're sort of on the store floor kind of people. So all these statistics people are, are writing and reading about, and I know there's great people out there, but I get a lot of, like, our customers asking me what, what's happening on the store floor. And I can tell you right now, the store floor basically is talking to our suppliers and everything every day, 
they've seen fuel prices go up for their tractors, their boats. You know, transportation costs have, have been skyrocketing, as everybody knows. But it seems like things are settling down. Just I can't give you, like, like numbers, statistics, or anything, but I can tell you what we're hearing here on the floor uh, at Stu Leonard's. How much of the price increases that, that you're talking about here I, are you passing on to consumers and, and how much are you wearing yourself? Because yeah. clearly that's, that's a cost to you too, but for, for some families, it's, you know, it makes the difference between meals, size of meals. Yeah, I know. it. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know you, we've, we've had customers for years and years and we, we know a lot of them coming through the store it's a tough time right now. And what we've done with our suppliers, we're trying to split it 50-50. Um, I guess we're sort of like Target a little bit. We're behind in our earnings and, and our margins and everything. But, you know, we're holding on certain products like rotisserie chicken, butter, eggs, ground beef is still the same price. We're trying to, even though our costs have gone up a little bit, we're still trying to hold the price on something to make it easier on our customers that are shopping at the store. Um, you know, Julian, the problem I have, my 92-year-old dad came in the store and he goes, put more pepperoni on the pepperoni pizza. You know, so we're not cutting back as far as uh, making packages smaller or putting less ingredients into something. We're trying to give customers what they always wanted. Okay, we, you know, here and there, you've had to bump some prices, especially on things we make fresh here at Stu Leonard because we have a labor component to it. We've had to raise our starting rate, like most companies, um, up to that $16 number. And so um, uh, that, that, that puts uh, obviously a, a dent on earnings. This is such a great point, and it's something that's not even captured in the data that we've been talking about today, and that's not just getting people through the door hiring, but the compression effect of people that already work for uh, you. And they're like, hang on a second, you're paying him that or her that. I, I want, I want a, a pay increase. I'm sure you're getting that kind of pressure too. And, and on the farms as well that you're visiting, it's, it's again, it's all part of the, the pressure and the chain. Yeah, well, you know, you have to look at labor as an investment because you want great people. If you want great customer service, you have to have great people. And uh, train them well and everything. And, and there is tremendous compression up the line. And, you know, we've had some people, when we first started raising the starting rate, they said, I'm training somebody who's making more than I'm making. So you, you got to start raising people all the way up the, the chain. And the other thing, I can't roll that back in a year. I can't go to somebody and say, hey, we're going to now trim your hourly pay a dollar. Those are baked-in prices that are going to be around for, for the future. Yeah, as you said, labor is an investment, but it's a combination of a lot of things that make it, it pretty challenging at this time. You have a, yeah. a great sense, given your experience, and obviously people still have to eat, no matter what the economic environment's like and the recessionary behavior, but you understand what people do and the choices that they make when they start to really feel the pinch. Does this feel recessionary to you, even if we're not talking about it yet for the consumer? Because a lot of people are saying, hey, the consumer is incredibly resilient. Is that what you feel? Well, I, I think people, the first part of this is they're going to trim back and look at the amount they spend on food. 
Um, I, I heard the clothing person earlier. It's almost like buy what you need and not what you want. The other thing you can do is we notice a lot more people gravitating to our specials. And I would recommend everybody watching, look for any food store specials. They usually have them. We were just in in Kansas, as I said, with our ranchers. We got a great deal on New York strip steaks and porterhouse steaks. I would stock up on those. You can freeze them. Uh, the other thing is these apps that, that everybody has. I went in and got a Starbucks this morning, you know, and I used my app. And I get all these points and I get uh, a special yeah. on a coffee coming up. So every store has them, including Stu Leonard's. And, and also look for the private label in the store rather than national brands. Uh, many times they're made by the same manufacturer and they're the, the same quality. Can, so. Yeah, the price can be lower. Two things, Stu, yeah. I have to let you go. The first one is... Um, Great work on the, the baby food, the formula. You can hold that up again, just yeah. to remind our viewers that you have some. Great work on that. Yeah, you see, I, I do help yeah, fewer. And the second thing is, get, say hi to your father for me, please, and give him his pepperoni. He deserves <laughs> I, it. And my mom, hey, my mom's <laughs> turning 90. My mom's wow. turning 90 on Monday, too. So wow, happy I, birthday I will, to your mother. I, thank you. I'll pass that along. Thank you very much. Big Jill. hug. Stu Leonard Jr. Okay. there, the CEO and president of Stu Leonard's. And happy birthday to your mom again. More first <laughs> yeah. move Thank after you. the break. Breaking news just into CNN. The U.S. announcing that it's ending its requirement for inbound travelers to test negative for COVID-19. That, according to a senior administration official, the move will go into effect for U.S. bound air travelers at midnight on Sunday. And finally, it sounds like a scene out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but it happened in Pennsylvania. Two people fell into a tank of chocolate at the Mars M&M factory on Thursday. Fire crews had to cut a hole in the tank to rescue them. They were taken to hospital. There's no word on the extent of their injuries, nor how they actually fell into the chocolate tank. We hope them well, and it sounds more like an intervention than a rescue to me. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you next week.